This is a recording of the Maori Latter-day Saint Historical Narrative, Editions and Amendments, by Louis Midgley, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, read by Victor Worth. Abstract. Selwyn Katane has again assembled twelve essays written by the descendants of famous Maori Latter-day Saints. This volume flows from a revival of interest in the ground and content of the faith of early Maori saints that began in the late 1990s. In various ways, the essays in this volume add to and amend what has previously been known about what began unexpectedly on Christmas Day in 1882, when the first group of Maori joined the Church of Jesus Christ. Not only did the Maori have seers who opened the way, some of these elite Maori men, who had been initiated into Maori esoteric knowledge of divine things, also found that their temple endowment fit rather snugly with their previous initiation ceremonies. Unlike other Christian missionaries, Latter-day Saint missionaries did not see the Maori as primitive heathens, and Maori saw in the restored gospel crucial elements of their own deeper understanding of divine things. Latter-day Saint missionaries were seeking to liberate Maori from the soul-destroying vices brought to them or enhanced by British colonization, while relishing the most noble elements in the Maori world. Review of Selwyn Katane, Editor, By Their Fruits You Will Know Them, Early Maori Leaders in the Mormon Church, Volume 2, Wellington, New Zealand, Steele Roberts Publishers, 2017, 295 pages, 3999 New Zealand, hardback. Like Turning the Hearts, which was the first volume in the series, By Their Fruits consists of twelve essays written by the descendants of early Maori Latter-day Saints who set out what now can be known about each on their own journey of faith. There is a fine foreword to this anthology by Fatarangi Winiata, a distinguished Anglican scholar. He begins by acknowledging that, quote, In 1881, the prophet Paora Potangaroa told a gathering at Te Ore Ore Marae in the Wairarapa that a new and great power would come from the direction of the rising sun. Later that year, the first Mormon missionaries arrived from the United States of America in the east. Within two years, hundreds of Maori in the region were converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Within ten years, one in twelve Maori, or roughly three thousand, belonged to the Mormon Church. Five years later, approximately 4,000 Maori had committed themselves to the Book of Mormon. Quote. He then explains that beginning in 1882, Latter-day Saint missionaries quote, moved humbly through Maori communities, conversing in Te Reo Maori, with little concern for land or colonization, but with an intense interest in Whakapapa, genealogy, a concept fundamental to all Maori. Rather than judging Maori as faithless heathens, which happened in some quarters, this new church welcomed them as Fananga, relatives, with Whakapapa to one of the twelve tribes of Israel. Quote. These insightful remarks set the stage for the accounts of the following Maori saints, three of whom are women, whose identity is shown by an asterisk. Henare Potai, 1828-1895, Rangi Kawea Hoani Puriri, 1840-1942, Perewihongi, 1848-1928, Pepene Eketone, 1848-1928, Hanakuts Winera, 1858-1933, asterisk, Alice Matawai Mataira, 
1861 to 1946, Henry Hammond, 1873 to 1961, Hemi Fataere Witihara, 1881 to 1963, Mariana Hall Bean, 1888 to 1957, asterisk, Pere Ihimaira Smiler, 1888 to 1972, Fakahetui in his conclusion, he calls attention to six additional important early Maori Latter-day Saints. Number one, Roma Hoeru Ruruku, whose daughter Wetekia Ruruku Elkington was a Matakite, seer, who also played a part in bringing together the South Island Ngati Koata Iwi tribe and the Ngati Toa Iwi that had earlier migrated to Porirua, which is just north of Wellington from Kauhia, which is much farther north on the west coast of the North Island. Number two, Manihera Te Rangia Kaiwaho, who in 1883 responded to what he heard and saw from elders Alma Greenwood and Ira Hinckley. He found that the missionaries and their message matched the prophetic proclamation of the Paura Putangaroa in 1881. In August 1883, he became a faithful branch president. Three, Piripi Temari became a Latter-day Saint on 2 June 1887 and was one of those with Te Fatahoro who helped translate the Book of Mormon into Maori. Piripi benefited considerably from the efforts of the Christian Missionary Society, CMS, since he had been trained in a school operated by William Williams, 1880-1878. Number four, Eriata Nopera who was among those who in 1881 had gathered at the Te Ore Ore Marai and who therefore witnessed Paura Potangaroa dictate his prophecy concerning the coming of a new and true version of the Christian faith. In 1920, Nopera and his wife were among those who went to Laie, Hawaii for their temple endowments when that temple was dedicated. He was also among a small group of Maori who had traveled to Salt Lake City where they were greeted by President Heber J. Grant. He was the second Maori to be ordained a high priest. Number five, Maihi Parone Kawiti, 1807-1889, who was born in 1807 at Waiomio, which is just south of Kawa Kawa in the Northland, and who was a son of the paramount chief of the Ngatihinehapu subtribe. He became a Latter-day Saint on 18 October 1888, when he was 81, and passed away on 21 May 1889 from typhoid. Number six, Katane also quotes at length the story told by Elder Robert L. Simpson in 1975 about Hirini Taifunga Heremaya, who was a lively and colorful Maori Latter-day Saint in 1950 when I was serving as a missionary in the Bay of Islands. Maori Matakite and Faithful Maori by Their Fruits has an appendix which begins with Hirini Fanga's famous account of how he and his people had been prepared in 1830 by Arama Toiroa, a famous Maori Matakite, seer, for the Latter-day Saint missionaries and their message. My own preference is to see Arama Toira as the most important of the Maori Matakite, whose declarations led Maori to become faithful saints. However, Paura Potangaroa, 
died 1882, is also seen as the key Maori prophet who opened the door for both Latter-day Saint missionaries and their message. In March of 1881, at a huge hui conference at Te Ore Ore Marae, which is just outside of Masterton in the Wairarapa, Paura Potangaroa responded to the question of which Christian denomination the Ngati Kahunganu Iwi tribe should join. They were faced with several sectarian alternatives, which then included the Anglican, Methodist, and Roman Catholic versions of Christian faith. After a period of prayer, he dictated to a scribe, He Kawenata, the covenant. In 1883, after Potangaroa had passed away in 1882, Latter-day Saint missionaries visited the Wairarapa. They and their message were seen by many Maori as the authorized messengers, bringing them the authentic Christian faith as set out in the covenant. Critics and a response Maori Matakite, seers, opened the door for our missionaries, but their message has been explained away, minimized, or ignored by authors, some of whom have never been Latter-day Saints, and also by some who still are, but for various reasons, declined to believe that such things actually happen. These critics tend to focus on Paura Potangaroa's covenant. They point out that the followers of Taupotiki Wiramu Ratana, 1873-1939, a famous political activist and faith healer who launched his own church on 15 July 1925, claim that Ratana and his church were identified in Potangaroa's prophecy. In 1928, Ratana sought to retrieve the copy of the famous covenant that had been dictated to a scribe and then placed in a cement monument located in the carved house in the Marae in Te Ore Ore. It had been destroyed by humidity. Without the document, Ratana's followers had only stories about its contents. In 1944, a photograph of the covenant was recovered. The story of its recovery involves Eriata Nopera. As a young boy, he was present at the Hui gathering at the Te Ore Ore Marae when Potangaroa dictated the covenant to a scribe. Nopera and Matthew Cowley were at a meeting of Latter-day Saints in Masterton in 1944 when a previously unknown photograph of the presumably lost document was given to Nopera, who presented it to Elder Cowley, who published an account of its recovery and crucial contents. Marjorie Newton has told this story reasonably well. However, she has also stressed that, quote, the followers of the Maori prophet Ratana believe that Te Potangaroa's prophecy foretold the coming of the Ratana church in the 1920s, close quote. To support her argument, Newton cites, but does not quote, a biographical sketch of Paura Potangaroa. The crucial language reads as follows, quote, various interpretations were made, It was believed to herald the arrival of the gospel of Jesus Christ as interpreted by the Mormons, and it was believed that missionaries would come from the East and set in place a new church. In 1928, when the religious leader T.W. Ratana visited Te Ore Ore at the request of the people, he removed the stone set up by Paura inside Nga Tau Ewaru, the Farenui carved house, repositioning it outside. The move silenced the medium. The coming of the Ratana faith is now widely believed to be the fulfillment of Paura's prophecy. Quote. Please notice that there is no mention in this account that Latter-day Saint missionaries and their messages were seen in 1883 by those who were directly familiar with Potangaroa's prophecy as the authorized messengers sent by God with the correct version of Christian faith. 
There's no mention that Potangaroa's covenant had been dictated to a scribe and placed in a concrete monument, and that the crucial document was destroyed by humidity. Nor is there mention of the recovery of a photograph of the covenant. The fact is that in 1883, Latter-day Saint missionaries who were not even aware that there were Matakite, nor that there was a Paura Potangaroa, discovered that Maori in the Wairarapa saw them and their messages having been predicted by Potangaroa. It was the followers of Wiremu Ratana in the 1920s who claimed that he fulfilled Potangaroa's covenant. This was, however, more than four decades after that famous prophecy was dictated in 1881. However, there is more. In Mormon and Maori, Marjorie Newton indicates that, quote, in New Zealand, where Mormons believe indigenous prophets foretold the coming of a new religion, several such prophecies are celebrated by Mormons, close quote. She then adds, quote, some Maori religions, such as Ringatu and Ratana, have likewise been seen as the fulfillment of these prophecies. Particularly, this is true of the prophecy most frequently quoted by Mormons, that of Paura Potangaroa, made at Te Ore Ore, near Masterton in the Wairarapa Valley in 1881. One version of which reads, quote, There is a religious denomination coming for us. Perhaps it will come from the sea. Perhaps it will emerge here. Close quote. When Wira Muratana went to Te Ore Ore in 1928 to retrieve the document, he discovered that humidity had destroyed it. He then moved the monument in which it had been placed outside of the building and took with him some relics that had survived. Marjorie Newton seems to indicate that there are compelling, quote, translations of the covenant that cast doubt upon the Maori Latter-day Saint understanding of the covenant. Matthew Cowley possessed the photograph of the previously lost covenant dictated by Potangaroa and written down by Ranginui Kingi on 16 March 1881. So what we have is competing interpretations of the famous covenant, but not different translations. In Mormon and Maori, Newton cites Bronwyn Ellsmore's opinions found in her Mana from Heaven on Potangaroa's prophecy. Ellsmore quotes what she calls a, quote, translation of Potangaroa's covenant made by James Rimene, 1931-2017, who was a prominent Te Ore Ore Kaumatua elder. Ellsmore also mentions conversations she had with Rimene and also with both Rimene and Margaret Hayata, his wife both of whom were devout followers of Ratana. Drawing from Ellsmore, Newton claims that, quote, Mormon accounts usually give a slightly different, quote, translation of the Potangoroa famous covenant. But a translation of what? The only copy of the covenant is the photograph that Eriata Nopera gave to Matthew Cowley in 1944. What text was James Rimene translating? This seems to me to be a matter of different and competing interpretations. Ellsmore's informants on Potangaroa's covenant were James and Margaret Hayata Rimene. In 1985, they provided her with a Ratana understanding, fashioned more than four decades after Potangaroa dictated his covenant. Clearly, Ratana's followers see in Potangaroa's covenant a prophecy of him and his church. Then Marjorie Newton focused on a phrase from Ellsmore's comments on Potangaroa's covenant when she wrote Mormon and Maori, in which she brushes aside these prophecies as merely Maori-Mormon wishful thinking. Beginning in 1950, I sought to understand the faith of Maori Latter-day Saints as well as that of Anglican and Ratana Maori. They were all then disarmingly honest. They sometimes described themselves as merely beer drinkers. 
Nearly seven decades later, my own affection for the ways of Maori saints has not abated. The truly remarkable stories of how God prepared some of them for the Church of Jesus Christ must be told as honestly and fully as possible. The Eo Cult and Initiation in a Farewananga In her introduction to her remarks about Potangaroa, Ellsmore also explains the rise of the, quote, king movement among the Maori, which was an effort to unite all the Maori tribes under a monarchy. She links this movement to the idea that there were, quote, meetings of Tohunga of a number of tribes being held for the purpose of reconciling various accounts of ancient mythology into an acceptable common version. As a result of this, knowledge of a traditional cosmology headed by a supreme god called Io was spread. This supreme figure, described by terms such as Iomatua, Ioroa, and many more, was believed to be the eternal, omnipotent, uncreated originator of all. Ellsmore then points out that quote, this teaching was open to much debate, with some scholars maintaining that the belief was not part of the old tradition, but was post-European, being a result of Christian teachings and others answering that the doctrine was not generally known because of the custom of the Maori to restrict the highest esoteric spiritual knowledge to selected initiates of the Farewananga. She does not directly indicate where she might stand on this crucial issue. Instead, she merely indicates that in the 1860s, quote, the doctrine of Io had the effect of re-establishing the validity and value of the traditional beliefs of the Maori since Christian missionaries had insisted that their traditional beliefs, as she put it, quote, were without truth or substance, close quote. In addition, especially the Anglican clergy, despite the fact that they had made the Bible and their version of its teachings available to the Maori, were no longer trusted. With, quote, the ground so well prepared, close quote, Ellsmore argues some Maori found the message of Latter-day Saint missionaries attractive. And hence the initial campaign of the Latter-day Saint missionaries, quote, between 1880 and 1900, ensured that the Mormon alternative was established for some years at least. Her final assessment is that what Latter-day Saint missionaries brought to the Maori was, quote, essentially another foreign message, which also did not answer the needs of the Maori. She does not explain what those needs might have been, other than having their own way of protesting against the Pakeha incursion into Aotearoa, New Zealand. Hence, the last half of her book is an account of various political and religious movements whose rhetoric was often cast in biblical metaphors as they sought to deal with the theft of land often backed by the crown, which was often supported by the Anglican clergy. Additional details in By Their Fruits I have previously mentioned my own fondness for the prophecy made in 1830 by Arama Toiroa, which differs in detail from that of Paura Potangaroa. It also led many Maori, who then lived far to the north of where Potangaroa's covenant was set down in writing to join the church. In an appendix to By Their Fruits, entitled The Smith Banao and the LDS Mormon Church, there's a description of how the Fanga Smith extended family were drawn into the Church of Jesus Christ. Hiran Smith, who is unfortunately not identified, describes Hirini and Mary Fanga's epic journey to Utah in 1894, where they were endowed in the Salt Lake Temple. They took with them some of their Fanao, extended family, including Walter Smith, Mere's nephew, who, quote, would later become the foremost LDS church musician in New Zealand, close quote. What then follows is an interesting account of the Smith Fanao. 
The twelve biographies that constitute the body of By Their Fruits are told from currently available sources. They are also often told with much gritty detail, and sometimes by those who are not Latter-day Saints. This is a warts-and-all history, and there are no indications of an effort to tidy things up. There is, however, a serious effort to situate these individual Maori saints in the historical context. They are not, however, told from a, quote, Mormon studies perspective, which is very often modeled on a secular religious studies ideology. Instead, they are told from within the categories of the Maori world and also the faith of Maori saints. This is made evident, for example, by many references to the role played by Maori Matakite, seers, in the first conversions of Maori. There are numerous references to Aramatoira and Paura Potangaroa. Among others, it was these two Maori seers who had authentic divine special revelations, first in 1830 and then in 1881, that opened the door for Latter-day Saint missionaries and their message. Light Shining Out of Darkness Given the very limited resources, both human and otherwise, then available to the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saint missionary endeavor among the Maori depended upon those first often dedicated and stalwart Anglican, Methodist, and Roman Catholic missionaries who had earnestly sought to bring their versions of Christian faith to the Maori 68 years before the first Maori became Latter-day Saints. In addition, those first CMS missionaries to reach New Zealand simply could not avoid, quote, judging the Maori as faithless heathens, given the dogmatic theology in which they had been indoctrinated, and not merely in some quarters, as Fatarangi Winiata has it. However, this must be contrasted with Latter-day Saint missionaries who did not see these Maori as savages in need of being civilized. In addition, those same Latter-day Saint missionaries saw nothing in Congress when they suddenly discovered that Maori had genuine seers. Instead, they rejoiced to discover that, to gloss the words that begin the famous poem by William Cowper, 1731-1800, to entitled Light Shining Out of Darkness, that God had moved in an unexpected and even mysterious way to perform his wonders among some Maori in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I have argued that what we see with these Maori Matakite opening the door for our missionaries is a providential, momentary merging of two authentic prophetic traditions. This seems to me to have been made evident in several essays in By Their Fruits, and especially in Wallace Wihongi's essay on his own beloved ancestor. Initiation in Farewananga and Maori Latter-day Saints I first met Dr. Cleve Barlow at a huge Pioneers in the Pacific conference that was held at BYU-Hawaii on 7-11 to 11 October 1997. In 1999-2000, I had long conversations with him. He was then one of the last three Maori to have actually been initiated in a Farewananga, House of Learning. He felt free to discuss details of his intense Wananga training with me because we had both been endowed in a Latter-day Saint temple. He insisted that the version of the Farewananga initiation published many years ago under the title Lore of the Farewananga by S. Percy Smith from manuscripts provided by Hemite Fatahoro, Jury, was garbled, perhaps intentionally. Cleve Barlow's initiation took place in the Hokianga region of the Northland when he was young. He told me that the Maori Anglican priest who instructed him in the Wananga saw nothing in his Anglican faith that resembled the instructions he was providing in that Wananga. 
I wonder if some elite Maori men could have been trained in Awananga and become or been Anglicans or Methodists soon after those first Christian missionaries arrived in the Bay of Islands, without those missionaries being aware of those esoteric teachings, since those initiated took an oath not to reveal what they had learned in Awananga. In addition, could some of those now Anglican and Methodist Maori who had been initiated in Awananga also continue living in their own Maori world? There are hints that this is the case. According to Bronwyn Ellsmore, a Perahama Taoni who, quote, was taught at the Wesleyan mission on Hokianga, apparently experienced an instance of religious inspiration or revelation in September 1834, close quote, that involved the Messiah, the Son of God. This claim both confused and troubled the Wesleyan clergy. However, for many years he was, quote, a firm supporter of the Wesleyan church, close quote. He was, she also claims, quote, an initiate of the Farewananga. In 1856, Taunui, according to Ellsmore, even, quote, agreed to record his sacred knowledge, close quote, for John White, a government interpreter, on condition that it not be shown to the Maori. He later opened a Farewananga among the Ngati Fatua, the traditional enemies of his own iwi. Some of those early Maori saints who were endowed in either the Salt Lake Temple or later in the temple in Laie had been initiated in a Farewananga. And much later, Cleve Barlow, after having been trained in Awananga, joined the Church of Jesus Christ and became a faithful Latter-day Saint. He found in both the Church of Jesus Christ and especially in the Latter-day Saint Temple Endowment much that matched as well as deepened his own understanding of Maori tikanga, the correct or proper way of being Maori, as well as his own striving to be a genuine Latter-day Saint. There are reasons to believe that this was also true with many of those first Latter-day Saint Maori men who had also been initiated in Farewananga, and who later saw a congruence between their own Maori world and their temple endowment. By Their Fruits contains several appropriately cautious references to the esoteric instruction that certain elite Maori underwent in Farewananga. The deepest Maori and Latter-day Saint understandings of both divine and human things are remarkably consonant while sectarian Christian dogma classes especially with the esoteric lore at the heart of the Maori world. I simply cannot explain how the essentially tapu, sacred, initiation elite Maori men underwent turned out to be consonant with their own subsequent Latter-day Saint temple endowment. However, it seems clear that those first endowed Maori were thereby made powerful disciples of Jesus Christ and also very able teachers and preachers when they returned to New Zealand. It would be a mistake to overlook the role played by elite Maori who had been initiated in Afarewananga in efforts to understand the grounds and contents of the faith of early Maori saints. This initiation seems to me to have yielded a more nuanced and clear understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ for Maori Latter-day Saints. This was certainly true of Hirini and Meri Fanga, and it can be seen in Hirini Fanga's impact on the faith of Wihongi Fanao. The problem was getting those Maori who were attracted to the faith brought to them by Latter-day Saint missionaries to jettison their dependence on vices brought to them by English colonizers. Those who had been initiated in Afarewananga clearly saw the teaching of Latter-day Saint missionaries in the light of their own Maori understanding of divine things. This often grounded their longing for the necessary moral and spiritual discipline needed to eventually return to the highest heaven. All of this is an important part of the Maori Latter-day Saint historical narrative. Now, of course, greater challenges threaten the Maori world. 
meeting these challenges can, I believe, be aided by remembering the first staunch Mara Latter-day Saint disciples of Jesus Christ. However, this contrasts with the kind of Christian faith taught to the Maori by Anglicans, Methodists, or Roman Catholics, which did not seem to either Maori or to their Christian teachers to have anything in common with the older, authentic Maori understanding of divine things. Nor did the Maori tend to see elements of their own esoteric lore in versions of Christian faith to which they were first introduced by Anglican missionaries, beginning in 1814 by Samuel Marsden. The Impact of the Bible on the Maori those first Anglican missionaries eventually made portions of the Bible available to the Maori, who could then read of divine revelations, visions and dreams, theophany and so forth. Their Christian teachers restricted these to the Bible, and were alarmed when some Maori who had become Christian began to receive their own manifestations from God. Those first Anglican and Methodist missionaries insisted on sola scriptura, Bible alone, and hence were also radical sessionists. That is, all real, divine, special revelation had ceased with the death of the apostles. Maori saw this as strange. While what little those CMS missionaries understood of the Maori understanding of human and divine things seemed to them to be primitive, crude superstition. Some Maori then began to see those who had brought them Christianity as less than fully committed to what they found when they began to read the Bible in Maori, which those dedicated CMS missionaries had made possible. Though I have criticized Bronwyn Ellsmore's chapter on Pawara Potangaroa and find her comments on the faith of Latter-day Saints deeply flawed, she properly stresses the crucial role of CMS missionaries in making possible both remarkable Maori literacy and also making the Bible available in Te Reo. The English struggled with written Maori. For example, very simple place names like Keri Keri might be written as Kitty Kitty, Keri Keri, or even Kiddy Kiddy. Teaching Maori to read their own language forced those first CMS missionaries to find a way of fixing the orthography of written Maori before they could begin to publish portions of the Bible in Tereo. To do this properly, Thomas Kendall, 1778-1832, a CMS missionary, traveled to England with Hongihika, 1772-1829, the famous Ngapui paramount chief, to consult with Samuel Lee, 1773-1852, a linguist who was a professor of Arabic at Cambridge University. Lee sorted the Maori orthography, which has subsequently remained the same, except for the conventions on long vowels. Soon portions of the Bible were available in Maori. William Williams, 1800-1887, also a CMS missionary, quickly became fluent in Tereo. He was able to fashion a grammar and, in 1844, published a Dictionary of the Maori Language. Those endeavors made it possible for Maori to read the Bible in their own language, and soon most Maori were Christians. For the Latter-day Saint missionary endeavors that began in the late 1880s, this was necessary and, I believe, providential. I began my own missionary endeavors in August 1950 in the Whangarei area, and especially in the wonderful Bay of Islands, where the Bible-reading, Bible-translation began. I did not realize that the Williams Memorial Church on Marsden Road in Paihia was the fourth building on that plot of land. However, the wooden Christ Church in Russell in Paihia met in the famous Waitangi Treaty House, since Peter Heperi, the branch president, was then in charge of the treaty grounds. That entire complex has now become a major tourist attraction. I had a look at Russell, which was in 1950 a quaint, quiet little town but it was once known as 
Korororeka, when there was the, quote, hellhole of the Pacific, with grog shops, prostitution, gambling, and violence. All of these vices and more were soon, unfortunately, to be introduced to the Maori. Just north of Russell is Mikey Hill, with its famous flagstaff. This was where Honeheke began the first Maori war with the crown by cutting down the flagstaff to show his opposition to the British claim that Waitangi Treaty, which had been sort of signed on 6 February 1840, led the British to think it made the Maori subjects of the British monarchy. The first time he did this was on 11 March 1844. I also had a look at most of the places where that war, which ended on 11 January 1845, was fought. I heard the stories of those dreadful battles, and also had a look at where most of them took place. Maori who were Christians fought on both sides. I still find that fact deeply troubling. However, I now like knowing that the flagstaff was finally replaced in January 1858 by Maihi Parone Kawiti, whose father, Teruki Kawiti, had fought with the Honeheka. The motive was a desire for peace. I like knowing that it was a Latter-day Saint that was responsible for that gracious, symbolic act. Ellsmore calls attention to how many of those she calls Maori Kurua prophets appropriated the language of the Bible in fashioning what they taught in opposition to the crown. They were, she argues, borrowing metaphors from the Bible to express their disappointment with the behavior of Christian missionaries. She opines about Maori prophets in two books. In Mana from Heaven, she uses only the English word prophet, which she uses to describe Maori who launched protest movements or founded Maori churches. However, she does give attention to the Maori word matakite, seer, in Like Them That Dream. One needs to keep in mind that in the Book of Mormon, seers are greater than prophets. Prophets speak for God, while seers, among other things, actually encounter divine beings. I am confident that something like this explains why, in Mana from Heaven, Ellsmore mentions only one quote-unquote prophet, Paura Potangaroa, who opened the door for Latter-day Saint missionaries, while ignoring Aramatoiroa and several others. The Larger Context Samuel Marsden, the harsh Anglican chaplain of the Paramatal Penal Colony Australia, made his first of many visits to New Zealand in 1814. He preached the first sermon to the Maori on Christmas Day. However, bringing Christian faith to the Maori proved difficult. It was in 1825, 11 years later, when the first Maori was baptized. There are several reasons. At first, instead of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Maori, CMS missionaries struggled to survive. They made a living by trading muskets to the Maori for provisions with which to sustain themselves. Henry Williams arrived in Paihia on Marsden's fourth visit. Since muskets and Maori did not mix at all well, he ended the musket trade. But the Ngapuhi Iwi had secured weapons that led to brutal raids in what is known as the Musket War, in which Maori sought to settle old accounts, and hence also fought and killed each other in large numbers with muskets. Despite all of this and more, those first CMS missionaries eventually had remarkable success, primarily because those CMS missionaries made the Bible available in Tereo and also train the Maori to read it in their own language. Ellsmore describes this in both Like Them That Dream and Mana from Heaven. This also, she argues, eventually led Maori who were deeply troubled by the English incursion in New Zealand to fashion their own versions of faith, often based on the Old Testament rather than the Christian faith brought to them by Anglican and Methodist missionaries.
The leaders of these movements also sought to use biblical imagery in radical protest movements. There were several short-lived Maori movements laced with elements drawn from the Bible, some even to justify guerrilla warfare against the crown, as well as those Maori who sided with the crown. The primary issue driving these movements seems to have been the promiscuous appropriation of Maori land. However, the Maori who were attracted to the Church of Jesus Christ were, as both of the books edited by Selwyn Katane demonstrate, essentially peacemakers, that is, eager to find ways to live peaceably with the Pakeha. Disillusionment with Anglican Christianity According to Peter Lynham, quote, The Mormon mission to the Maori flourished from 1882 in a direct reaction to the lowered reputation of other churches among the Maori, close quote. Most of the Maori who became Latter-day Saints seem to have been disillusioned Anglicans. This is illustrated in the remarkable account of Henare Potea by Gina Colvin and Hannah S.B. Tukukino. Potea was a devout Anglican who resisted radical Maori factions for much of his adult life. Then in 1884, when he encountered Latter-day Saint missionaries, he became a faithful Latter-day Saint to the end of his life. Colvin provides a fine account of the Anglican career of Potea. She also describes the earlier rapid social transformation that began when the, quote, Napuhi's rampage across the North Island saw the decimation of many Ngatipodo Hapu at the hands of Hongihika and Pomare. This was, of course, the sour fruit of CMS missionaries in the Bay of Islands who traded muskets for provisions, which made it possible for the Ngapuhi Iwi from the Northland to make war on other Iwi in the North Island. Colvin ably sets out these grisly details. This grim history is introduced by a stunning account by Hana Espi Tukukino, quote, the great-great-granddaughter of Henare Potai, close quote, who was once headed for the delights of Tolaga Bay when she, quote, heard the unmistakable voice of her deceased grandmother speaking to her, Hoki ki te kainga, go back to the home, there is something there for you, close quote. She disappointed her kids by not going directly to the beach, but, quote, to the old family homestead, to what was left of her grandmother Tepora Kautuku Juri's home. Rummaging around, she eventually found, quote, a Maori version of the Book of Mormon, translated by Hoani Te Fatahoro Juri, Henare Potai, and Piripi Te Mari, and other copies of Latter-day Saint scripture. She had connected with her noble ancestor and also with this truly remarkable whanau. Henare Potai was a scholar who could read and write both Maori and English. He also had, quote, expertise in translating and editing texts, close quote. He began as a devout Anglican, quote, but in 1884, Henare disaffiliated from Anglicanism and joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, close quote. Unfortunately, little is known about him, quote, beyond his contribution to the Maori translation of the Book of Mormon, close quote, which task is not insignificant. It is possible and perhaps likely, according to the author of this essay, that he had experienced, quote, some kind of witness or charismatic event that caused this radical conversion to a church that was fairly unpopular on the east coast of the North Island of New Zealand. He also, quote, dared to go against every cultural and social expectation of a person of his standing and join the fledgling and audacious Mormons to the end of his days, close quote. This fine essay ends with a truly beautiful Correro, speech from Hana S.B. Tukukino, addressed to Henry Potai, her beloved ancestor. This is the Maori world at its very best. A small beginning. 
William Bromley, 1839-1911, who first served a brief mission in England in 1871, was called in November 1888 to preside over the Australasian mission of the Church of Jesus Christ. Then, on 11 December, he was instructed by John Taylor to strive to teach the Maori, after which he was set apart by Franklin D. Richards. He arrived in Auckland, New Zealand on 4 December 1880 with two new missionaries. There were two missionaries on South Island, both of whom were about to return home, and there were no missionaries in Australia. Bromley never visited or assigned missionaries to Australia. Though Bromley brought with him a letter from the President's office, signed by John Taylor and Joseph F. Smith, and addressed to, quote, the saints in New Zealand, indicating that he had been called to preside over them, on Thursday, 20 January 1881, at a meeting of the priesthood of the Auckland branch, he, quote, presented his credentials and was received by the unanimous vote of the meeting as president of the New Zealand mission, and upon being requested, appointed Auckland as the headquarters of the mission, close quote. This was also approved. This seems to have been necessary because he was there essentially without purse or scrip, which meant that those often quarreling saints had agreed to provide him with lodging, food, clothing, travel, expenses, and so forth, which they did. Bromley's own ardent first efforts to teach Maori the restored gospel were fruitless, and those of his first few missionaries were bizarre, clumsy failures. Then Bromley, after rebaptizing William John MacDonald, who was the graver at the dry dock in Auckland, also called him to be a missionary to the Maori, and blessed him to learn the Maori language. This he did. MacDonald then met, taught, and on 18 November 1881, baptized Ngataki, the first Maori to become a Latter-day Saint in New Zealand. The first Maori Latter-day Saint branch. However, the real breakthrough took place later when Bromley accepted an invitation to visit Thomas Cox, who had moved from Auckland to Cambridge, which is 14 miles south of Hamilton, where he hoped to make his living as a bootmaker. The Cox family had previously been members of the Quarrel in Auckland branch. Bromley and Cox were surprised when William MacDonald, as a result of didactic dreams, turned up before breakfast on the morning of Christmas Eve. MacDonald and Cox reconciled, and then the three soon set out to pass out copies of a tract in the Maori language, which MacDonald had managed to have fashioned and printed. Later in the day, those three met Hare Temana, who either had a dream or, as I believe, had a visit of the Apostle Peter, who then, in vision, showed those three Latter-day Saints to Temana and explained that they were authorized to act for him. Temana also explained that his daughter was seriously ill. They gave her a blessing, and the next morning she had mostly recovered. Then, after instructions by MacDonald, who could do this in Tereo, in the evening of Christmas Day, Temana, his wife, and Hare Tecatere, Harry Carter, were baptized in the Waikato River, with other Maori observing. On 26 December, William MacDonald left early in the morning for Auckland, but on 29 December, Bromley sent a telegraph message to MacDonald, asking him to come back to Cambridge to administer the sacrament for the new Maori saints on Sunday, 31st December, and to explain the gospel to a group of Maori. On 1 January 1883, six more Maori were baptized. Bromley also makes it clear that those Maori were camped near the Maori land court, with which they had important business. They had to secure a legal title to specific plots of land, since the Maori had no idea of private property prior to being civilized by the British. They had to do this or risk not owning the land upon which they depended. 
Bromley's journal contains a separate summary of his own endeavors to teach the restored gospel to the Maori, which he inserted in his journal immediately after his Tuesday, 6 March, 1883 entry. His journal entry for 23 December, 1882, reads as follows. Quote, President Bromley visited Cambridge, and on the same date, Elder MacDonald was so impressed that he could not resist the influence which prompted him to follow. He had been warned in dreams in relation to the matter. Among other things, it was shown to him that the Maoris were waiting to receive the truth. He accordingly left Auckland at 4.15 p.m., and upon arriving in Hamilton, completed the journey on foot to Cambridge, 14 miles, and arrived at daybreak the next morning. After partaking of breakfast, which was hospitably supplied by Brother Thomas Cox, President Bromley, Elders MacDonald, and Cox visited the Maoris in the vicinity, but at first met with little encouragement, and as the party were returning from the journey, Elder MacDonald was led to visit a party of natives not before seen. They found them anxious to hear, and they received the word. One of the party relating a dream wherein he had been forewarned in relation to the truth presented, and on the following day, 25 December 1882, two males and one female, all adults, were baptized. Elder MacDonald officiating, confirmation by President Bromley and Elder Cox. January 1, 1883, six other adults, natives, were baptized, and much inquiry is manifest. Elder William MacDonald interpreted, and was blessed in enjoying the spirit of his calling, prompt to act when called upon. Close quote. By 25 February 1883, there were, according to Bromley, 27 Maori ready to be organized into the first Maori Latter-day Saint branch in Wauto, which is about 18 miles south of Cambridge. With William MacDonald back at work in Auckland, Thomas Cox could not have been teaching them the restored gospel, nor could he have conducted the negotiations to determine who of the Maori men was willing to be ordained to the priesthood and assume the difficult task of leading this branch. Anaru Eketone's essay is a richly detailed account of Pepene Eketone, who was baptized in Cambridge on 9 January 1883 by Thomas Cox. He became an important member of the Wautu branch. I had entirely forgotten that in 1985, R. Lanier Bridge had called attention to Eketone's baptism and his immediate crucial assistance to the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, Anaru Eketone has fleshed out the brief account provided by Bridge by showing that before becoming a Latter-day Saint, Pepene, quote, was raised a Methodist by his native missionary parents, but became an early member of the Mormon Church and later the Ratana Church traveling with its leader as a Kaumatua and advisor on two world tours. Anaru Eketone provides a very detailed account of the ancestors of Pepene, and also the strong attachment to the Wesleyan movement by the Eketone Fanau. Anaru indicates that Pepene, quote, must have been a student of considerable ability, close quote. When he was 16, he attended the elite Auckland Grammar School, where he won prizes within six months. Then, when Pepene was 18, he was a star student at the Wesleyan Three Kings School, where he was being readied for the Methodist ministry. In 1882, and married, he was in Cambridge translating for Maori camp there to conduct business with the native land courts. Quote, Pepene became an important part of the growth of the Mormon church and was often used as a translator, close quote. According to Anaru, without William MacDonald to translate for the Maori, Thomas Cox had to rely entirely on Pepene Eketone to translate, because those other Maori could not understand English. 
Quote, On February 18, Thomas Cox gathered together a group of twelve Maori men to discuss giving some of them the Aaronic priesthood, but he was limited in that he could only speak in English. Pepinay translated for Cox and was one of the twelve men asked if they were willing to be ordained. After some discussion, over a week, it was decided that Hare Te Katera should receive the ordination first, all the younger men feeling that it was something that should be left to the oldest in the group. Close quote. And on 25 February 1883, Thomas Cox organized the 74 Maori members of the Church of Jesus Christ into the Wautu branch. However, when his business failed, Cox and his family went back to Auckland in mid-1883. Quote, Without help and leadership, according to Marjorie Newton, the initial enthusiasm of the Waikato Maori waned, and the mission to the Maori in the Waikato was temporarily abandoned by the end of 1883, though success began to occur elsewhere and soon resumed in the Waikato. Close quote. Anaro Eketone demonstrates that Newton was wrong about this. He does this in part by providing an accurate account of what began on Christmas Day in 1882 and what soon followed. Quote, all of what we know about Pepinay's subsequent involvement in the Mormon Church, close quote, according to Anuru Eketone, quote, came from the journals of William Gardner, who spent over three years ministering in the Waikato area in the mid-1880s, and from Francis Kirkham, who was there in the late 1890s. Anuru Eketone is, of course, aware that, quote, William Gardner visited Cambridge in December 1884 to find out what had become of the Wautu branch, but claimed that most of the early converts had turned their backs on the church, close quote. However, Anuru Eketone, by drawing on the journals of both William Gardner and Francis Kirkham, has been able to demonstrate that there were Maori Latter-day Saints scattered around the Waikato, some with ties to that first branch. He points out that Cambridge in 1882, quote, was a frontier town, close quote, where Maori camped while waiting to have their claims heard by the native land court. Hence, quote, it is unlikely that many of the early converts actually lived in Cambridge permanently, close quote. And he is able to trace some of those early saints who were visited first by William Gardner and later by Francis Kirkham. And Pepin Eketone was still a faithful Latter-day Saint in 1898. Also his, quote, Translation skills were put to use when he translated a four-page Mormon tract by William Bromley, entitled Konga Koreruhare Motehare Nganui, Glad Tidings of Great Joy, in 1883, quote, We are not sure at what stage Pepinen left the Mormon church, close quote. Anaru Eketone indicates, quote, But we do know that he became an important member of the Ratana movement in the 1920s, close quote. Pepinay's vast experience in those native land courts and his subsequent struggles for justice from the crown seem to have molded him for the Ratana movement, which has always had a deep interest in the political struggle for social justice. Pepinay's important role in the Ratana movement, both as advisor and companion, is set out in detail in this essay. Pepinay had a very, quote, deep commitment to justice, close quote, and he was, quote, a man of generosity and dignity, close quote. Why the shift in his faith? Quote, Pepinay's involvement in Methodism and Mormonism concentrated on faith and good works in this life as preparation for the next. Prathana focused more on the here and now. Close quote. Let it be done. Witi Ihimaira, a.k.a. Witi Tame Ihimaira Smiler, is a truly gifted writer. He has published novels, collections of essays and short stories, much very astute social commentary, and autobiographical essays. 
He also has considerable musical talent in fashioning opera and as a librettist. From 1973 to 1989, he was a diplomat in the New Zealand Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but also a very productive author. Then, for two decades, he taught Maori literature at Auckland University. He is the single most important Maori writer. I am delighted that he has written a celebration of his Latter-day Saint grandfather and his descendants. The first of his novels that I read was The Matriarch. I was enthralled by the rich detail about the Maori world on the east coast of the North Island, including their struggles with the steady Pakeha incursion into their world. This is all woven together in this complex and intriguing novel. There's a subtle account of a string of Maori protest movements that resisted, even violently at times, the British colonizers messing with their world. When I first read this novel, it was for me, among other things, a very beautifully crafted quote-unquote history, but without quibbles and footnotes, and with very penetrating and troubling insights than what one very often finds in stuffy academic historiography. Latter-day Saints are mentioned once or twice in this novel. Then there is a rather detailed description of the mode of instruction given in a farewananga, what Witi Ihimaira described as, quote, the University of the Maori, one of the most exclusive universities in the world, erected by priests and selected members of the Rangitira and Ariki. No commoners took part in the raising of the building, and the students were selected from among the highborn, close quote. What follows the instruction of elite Maori was roughly what I later heard from Cleve Barlow about his training from an Anglican priest in the Hokianga. When I reached chapter 15 in The Matriarch, I was convinced that its author was a Latter-day Saint, or had been, or somehow knew a great deal about the faith of Maori Latter-day Saints. I had been beguiled by Witi Imihaira's writings from the moment I read The Matriarch. Perhaps his most famous novel is a rather slim story, presumably written for children, entitled The Whale Rider which was made popular by a film adaptation of the same name. This novel was written in New York while he was living, quote, in an apartment overlooking the Hudson River, close quote, he explains in the American edition, when my daughters arrived on vacation from New Zealand, close quote. One of his daughters wondered, quote, why are the boys always heroes, close quote. At the same time, a whale turned up in the Hudson River. Ihimaira, in three weeks, had written this so-called children's novel. My wife's copy of The Whale Rider indicates that this novel was finished on 14 August 1986. She purchased her copy at Whitcoles on Queen Street in Auckland early in 1987. I believe this to be the initial New Zealand publication. It is filled with Maori words and expressions, yet there is no glossary and no translation. My wife noticed the Maori incantation hui e, haumi e, taiki e at the end of about every other chapter and she insisted that I provide a translation. She thought that language might be a key to understanding the novel, or at least might help her grasp the meaning of the lush metaphors and curious plot of the book. The American edition of The Whale Rider includes a glossary, in which hui e, haumi e, taiki e, is said to be, quote, a ritual incantation, join everything together, bind it together, let it be done, close quote. This incantation ends ten of the twenty-one chapters. In the American edition, each repetition of this ritual language is followed by the English, Let it be done. Nearing the crisis in this tale, quote, The chief, Koro Apirana, close quote, explains to those faced with the death of the mighty whale, quote, Once our world was one where the gods talked to our ancestors, and man talked with the gods. 
Sometimes the gods gave our ancestors special powers. Kuro then adds the following. But then man assumed a cloak of arrogance and set himself up above the gods. He even tried to defeat death, but failed. As he grew in his arrogance, he started to drive a wedge through the original oneness of the world. In the passing of time, he divided the world into that half he could believe in and that half he could not believe in, the real and the unreal, the natural and the supernatural, the present and the past, the scientific and the fantastic. He put a barrier between both worlds, and everything on this side was called rational, and everything on the other side was called irrational. Belief in our Maori gods has often been considered irrational. Quote. Then, at a decisive moment, Koro thunders, quote, If we have forgotten the communion, then we have ceased to be Maori. Now, for my own little sermon... I have indicated I am pleased that Witi Ihimaira has fashioned a moving, carefully worded account of the faith of Perez Myler, and also of his impact on his posterity, including himself. In addition, the language I have quoted from The Whale Rider seems to capture rather well the end product of European post-enlightenment skepticism about divine things that has infected the Maori world and has also ended up contributing to the plight of especially urban Maori, who are vulnerable to the vices brought to them by British colonizers. In our post-Enlightenment world, where there is deep skepticism about divine things, faith in God is challenged precisely because humans have, quote, assumed a cloak of arrogance, close quote. In addition, those first often dedicated, passionate Christian missionaries brought with them a dogmatic theology that challenges much of the tikanga of the Maori world and a worldview in which they saw the Maori as unenlightened pagan savages who had to be quote-unquote civilized. Part of what that included was, among other things, that they did not understand the real value of their land. And when they were converted to the sectarian version of the Christian God, who once revealed himself to humans, they found that God no longer can actually do that sort of thing since genuine divine special revelations ceased with the death of those first apostles. The language I quoted from the whale writer, at least from my perspective, also signals that if we apply it to the current situation, there's a need to find wisdom in the very best elements of the Maori past. A general assessment. In the late 1990s, there was a renewed interest in old Maori arcane lore among Maori Latter-day Saints. The informal wananga held by Heriwini Jones were for several years an important source for convert baptism and reactivation, followed by other similar and related public presentations by Cleve Barlow and others, as well as the remarkable collection of photographs taken by Latter-day Saint missionaries and assembled by Rangi Parker, which provides a visual record of Maori saints. This seems to me to have prepared the way for Selwyn Katane's fine series of books on remarkable early Maori Latter-day Saints. This second volume of essays, assembled by Katane, helps to flesh out and correct details in the truly singular Maori Latter-day Saint historical narrative. Like the previous volume in this series, By Their Fruits helps to remedy omissions and defects in earlier sectarian and secular accounts of the faith of Maori Latter-day Saints. These two volumes should also help current Latter-day Saints, both Maori and Pakeha, to better understand why and how the Church of Jesus Christ, beginning in the 1880s, rapidly became essentially a Maori community of saints, at least for the next eight decades. In addition, knowing more about the faith journey of specific individual Maori who became Latter-day Saints 
should help contemporary Maori remember and thereby also emulate those early saints in their own endeavor to become genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. This, I believe, is a crucial role of this series of volumes. Accounts of the discipleship of early Maori saints will also, I believe, help build and sustain the kingdom of God by reinforcing the shield that the restored gospel has provided Maori saints from the continuing ravages of colonization that challenge indigenous peoples everywhere. Those who currently identify as Maori and are faithful Latter-day Saints have been liberated from the usual temptations that every human being faces during their mortal probation, and also from the additional evils thrust upon indigenous peoples everywhere by European colonization. This fine collection of essays provides evidence of the sanctifying work of the Wairua Tapu, Holy Spirit, in the lives of some memorable Hunga Tapu saints, who also often found very good reasons and proper ways to resist the very corrosive acids of secular modernity. The Maori Latter-day Saint historical narrative should not be constricted by secular religious studies explanations and categories. I am therefore pleased that Maori, who are not enthralled to such explanations, are now striving to recover available sources and thereby add to and also amend portions of the truly remarkable Maori Latter-day Saint historical narrative. Despite the death we all face, those determined to be genuinely saints by seeking sanctification can now thereby enjoy the hope for a truly glorious life after life with their loved ones in the highest heaven, without the disappointments and debilities we all face as we endure our mortal probation. Lewis Midgley, Ph.D., Brown University, is an emeritus professor of political science at Brigham Young University, where he taught the history of political philosophy which includes efforts of Christian churchmen and theologians to identify, explain, understand, and cope with the evils in this world. Dr. Midgley has therefore had an abiding interest in both dogmatic and systematic theology and the alternatives to both. His doctoral dissertation was on the religious socialist political ideology of Paul Tillich, a once famous German-American Protestant theologian, most famous for his systematic theology, which is a radical elaboration of classical theism. Dr. Midgley's encounter with the writings of Leo Strauss, an influential Jewish philosopher intellectual historian, drew his attention to the radical challenge posed by what is often called modernity to both the wisdom of Jerusalem, which is grounded on divine revelation, and also the contrasting, competing wisdom of Athens, which was fashioned by unaided human reason. Dr. Midgley has an interest in the ways in which communities of faith have responded to the challenges posed by modernity to faith in God grounded on divine special revelation. This has been a recording of the Maori Latter-day Saint Historical Narrative, Additions and Amendments, by Louis Midgley, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 32, 2019, read by Victor Worth. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license, and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles on Latter-day Saint scripture can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.